With more than 500 programs a year, there is never a dull moment at the Commonwealth Club. If you're a fan of this podcast and you like hearing new and provocative discussions with the most interesting people in the world, consider showing your support by joining the Commonwealth Club and ensuring that the conversations never end. Visit commonwealthclub.org slash special to get special rates on membership. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's virtual program at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Ladaris Cordell, a retired judge of the Superior Court of California and a member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors. I'm thrilled to be in conversation today with David Gergen. This program is part of the Commonwealth Club's virtual series. We thank our members, donors, and supporters for making this and all our other programs possible. We are grateful for their support and hope others will follow their example to support the club during these uncertain times. And now I'm pleased to introduce our special guest, David Gergen. He is professor of public service and founding director of the Center for Public Leadership at the Harvard Kennedy School, where he has been for more than a decade. In addition, he serves as a senior political analyst for CNN and works actively with a rising generation of new leaders. In the past, he has served as a White House advisor to four United States presidents, Nixon, Ford, Reagan, and Clinton. Very few understand American politics in the way David Gergen does. At the Kennedy School, Center for Public Leadership, he has had the opportunity to work with countless young people and help to shape them into leaders and change makers. His wealth of experience as a Navy veteran, lawyer, presidential political advisor, and political analyst have given him a unique view of the United States government. So today, we'll talk with Mr. Gergen about the state of American politics and the country in general as we head toward the presidential election and 2021. So David Gergen, welcome to what is going to be a freewheeling conversation about everything and anything I could come up with and our audience can come up with. And I'm especially pleased to be talking with you because you are the rare person who gives clear and cogent explanations that are actually responsive to the questions asked. I mean, I frequently find myself yelling at pundits on TV, objection, non-responsive. And with you, viewers never have to scratch their heads and wonder what in the world the person just said. All right, so let's get started. In the midst of a pandemic, the nationwide and worldwide protests burned by the murder of George Floyd, the Black Lives Matter movement, this country's topsy-turvy economic situation, the Trump administration, the looming presidential election. So my first question to you is, how are you faring these days? How are you doing with all of this? Well, you know, we're, we're, I'm in quarantine on the East Coast. Uh, my wife and I are here. We've been here alone in a place on, on Cape Cod overlooking the water, which was pleasant. But I told her before we started, we went into quarantine on March 13th. And I told her, you know, this is going to make us or break us. Um, and so far, it's been the making. It's been terrific. There are times when I worry that I'm going to wake up in the middle of the night and she'll be strangling me. Um, but other than that, it, we've uh, we've had a wonderful time, and it's been a productive time. You know, all of us need time for reflection in our lives. So rather than looking at, at this as wasted time, or somehow you know it's been stolen from us, this is a time when we can we can actually 
rediscover ourselves and get underneath all the layers of the years and, 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 and begin to reconsider what life is all about, what the good life means, how to find meaning in life. I mean, that, that's a, a very good approach. I know that I find myself at times very, very frustrated looking at what's happening, everything going on. And, and But you're right that the way to get through this is to look at, again, how we can most productively use this time that we are sheltered in place. And I must say, I mean, when, we've never, we've had crises before. You and I have each, you know, gotten used to having a crisis every decade or so. But I never re- can recall having three crises, except in policy-type crises, hit us at the same time with the pandemic, and then, and then the loss of jobs and the deep recession, the sharp recession, uh, and, and now race relations. And I must say, I think there's a fourth crisis, and that is we have a crisis of leadership that crosses all of these areas. Uh, our public leaders, even some of our private leadership, but especially at the national and, and often at the state and local level. This has not been a good time for us. I hope we can find our way out of it. I, I'm among the optimists on the long term. I'm somewhat pessimistic about the short term, but I'm optimistic about the long term. But it's going to be tough, and we have to realize yeah. uh, we've got to start talking to each other and listening to each other in different ways. So let, let me pick up on what you said about what's happening now. Four recent polls suggest that about 15 million to 26 million Americans have participated in demonstrations since May 25th, uh, and that was the death of George Floyd. Um, There have been more than 4,700 demonstrations, um, on average 140 per day throughout this country. And the optics alone I find remarkable. Nearly 95% of counties that had a protest are majority white. So uh, my question to you is, you know, aren't we, are we at a tipping point in this country when it comes to acknowledging racial and economic inequality? Is, is real social and political change in the works? Are, are we going to end up reverting back to that standard playbook? You know, form a commission, get a task force, wait until the media gets distracted by something else. What do you think? I think there is a danger. And you can already feel it because a lot of attention is going back to the resurgence of the pandemic as the virus spreads. It's been a natural tendency on the part of the press to move away. Uh, I, and I think one of the good things about the protests is that they, by and large, have been peaceful. Um, if you remember the 60s and 70s, uh, it was it was a lot tougher. I, I remember walking into the White House one day past the old executive office building, demonstrators out on the streets, and they're tucked away inside the the, the, the squares and the, and the executive office building for a whole bunch of tanks. You know, they were preparing to use tanks. They had to. Um, and I thought, I felt much more dangerous. I don't feel this is dangerous. Are there some groups trying to exploit this thing? Yes, on both sides. Uh, you know, the, the, the right is arguing that Antifa is responsible for a lot of this, that they're anarchists and everything else. Um, and, and the, and the right and the left says, no, 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 the heart, you know, the police and, the, and these people who come after us all the time. Uh, the, uh, the people who have given artillery, uh, no army stops to, to the police. They're, they're the ones who are really cracking down. I, I don't know about you, Doris, but I, I, I think there's a growing illegal and political challenge right now in our cities. And that is the temptation that, whether, with the White House already sending in troops, federal troops, 
um, who are not, you know, they carry no designations, but they're, 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 they're feds. All right. And in Portland, which in Portland is, you know, has been a sort of a hippie type city for a long time. Uh, and they have had protests, but they've been large, by and large, peaceful protests. Uh, and to see those troops go in, they, there's a, there's a, one of the film clips that's out there this weekend, uh, is a, a man who was a U.S. Naval Academy graduate and a Navy veteran. Yes, I saw it. Big, yes. tough guy, but he walked innocently, innocently, did not cause trouble for anybody up to, to talk to those, those feds. And then they beat the hell out of him with their batons. It's astonishing. Yeah, they broke his hand. They broke his hand. They broke, they broke his, his hand, hand. And he's going to have his, I think his name is Christopher David. And I must say, he did not deserve that. Uh, and now we have the president talking about sending troops into into Chicago. And they have a list of seven or eight cities. All, as President Trump says, they're all Democrat cities. And, of course, they're a mess because they're, they're, the Democrats are running them. Um, I, you're, you're the expert on the law here, Rodolfo. What do you think about the, the legality? Right. I want to combine this with two things. On November 3rd, we have the election. And I'm concerned, one, about voter suppression. And we saw what happened in Georgia with the chaos in Georgia when they had these primaries. So I see that in conjunction with this armed national force being sent in by President Trump into these countries. And I see this really as just kind of the forecast, the forerunner of what may happen on November 3rd and even thereafter, kind of this this takeover. So I, I am very, very worried. And that is if we have federal troops at the direction of the White House and a dozen cities, major cities around the country on election day, and then the lines are long and people feel like they've been denied their vote in a fair way, and there are going to be riots in the streets, you could easily see early what you worry about. My, my nightmare is the president saying, for the sake of the country, I'm going to sacrifice myself and stay here until we sort this out. That could go on for a long time. Now, that's my nightmare. Uh, I, I hope that we have enough discussion of it beforehand so we can just close it down as an option. It should not be on the table. It, it is, is, it's the most authoritarian uh, step I, we've seen uh, that has a potential for very authoritarian regime uh, in a second yeah. term. Yeah, I agree with you. And it's, it's absolutely frightening that our democracy, you know, is on the brink of, of actually becoming an authoritarian state. So let me ask you this, though. So you're alarmed. I'm alarmed. Many, many people are alarmed. One about just voter suppression and now this. So why is it that the Republican Party, and I'll, I'll refer to just maybe Republican governors and others within the administration, they're reluctant to recognize all this? and reluctant to speak, well, they're not reluctant, they just don't. They don't speak out and decry what they see that, that is happening in this country. I, I totally agree with that. I, you know, if you talk to some of them personally, they feel caught in a, in a crossfire. They, you know, especially they come from places like Trump won by 10 or 15, 20% last time. Uh, they're really, they're, they're worried if they, they're crossing or they cross the base, uh, the antagonize the base, the base will turn out for the other side, especially in primaries, Republican primaries are still between now and election day. So I get that, but there, the, there are just two more points. One, it's an act of cowardice. Uh, you know, it really, if you, if you believe in something, your beliefs ought to count, your convictions ought to count more than whether you can cling to office or not. Uh, and so that, that's a very, very important uh, part of this. But I, I just think it is, 
very problematic for the country to be in a situation like that and to be worried about something like this. We ought to be focusing now. I think it's a legitimate concern. Are people going to have a right to vote in a way that they don't have to um, take their lives into their hands and risk their health to go to go and vote? Are they going to be given ballots they can vote with? And are we, and are we, can we get rid of this notion, which is a false notion, that write-in ballots inevitably mean huge amount of corruption? There are all sorts of studies that, that you know undercut that argument. And it, it is, let's just face it, especially in since the days of John Lewis, yeah, the morning for John Lewis, his critical issue was voter suppression, the right That's to vote. Right. He thought right. it was the single most important way to uh, to give people of color an equal shot, an equal chance at the starting line. And unless you had the right to vote, and we went through this. You know, you and I lived through this back in, you were, you were too young for most of it, but. Well, I was there. And, and so, you know, to get to that, we have the 14th Amendment, 15th Amendment, 19th Amendment, 24th Amendment, 26th Amendment, all refer to voting. And so let, let me ask you this. I mean, we do not have federal law regarding voting. We don't. Do you think we should? There should be one standard. It shouldn't be left to each of the states. This becomes scandalous, and I think it's aiming in that direction. Yes, I think we would have the support to, to go, go to some sort of national standard. I mean, there are so many ways in which, you know, I, I think the I, I work for, I had the privilege of working for both presidents of both parties. And I'm just telling you, I we, we made a lot of mistakes. Each of the presidents and the staff, particularly, I take responsibility for a lot of mistakes along the way. And we're imperfect. But I can't remember a time, and I don't think there is a time in American history, when there's been so much irresponsibility. Uh, at the federal level, and there's been so much, uh, and, and sort of, um, and so much poison. Now, I will tell you, Doris, I think there are signs that the dam's starting to break on the Republican side. There are Republicans now who are pushing the president, and I think they may have just scored a victory here. That was important in the last two or three days. You know, we all know how important testing is. You know, Dr. Fauci has convinced everybody that testing is central. Well, the, 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 the Republicans and the Democrats uh, got together in a bipartisan way and said, we need in the next bill, the next stimulus package, it's going to come shortly. We need to put money, more money in for testing. And the White House was against that. It was astonishing. How could they be against getting testing to work when we got such a gigantic mess because it's not working? So, but just today, um, the, the word has come that, uh, uh, that the White House is now willing to accept uh, more testing. I'm hoping that that is a, these are signs of the future, omens of the future. Would it help Donald Trump's campaign if he if he went more to the middle? Yes, of course it would have some. I don't think it's enough to win. But listen, it, the most important thing is to do the right thing and save people's lives. And if it helps right. Trump, it helps Trump. Yeah. With that. That's not shouldn't be the concern. It is whether we're doing right by people getting sick. So let, let me let's switch subjects here. Um, Joe Biden, Joe Biden has yet to choose a running mate. And we do know that the person will be a woman. Um, among those who's, he's been, who've been touted as high on the list, there's Senator Kamala Harris, there's former UN Ambassador Susan Rice. So what qualities should Joe Biden be looking for in a running mate? And if you were Joe, who would you pick? Given the fact that he has a 
lead of anywhere from eight to 15 points, depending on which poll you're looking at. But in the last few days, like there are three or four polls that have Biden with a double digit lead. I think what he does not want to do is pick somebody, you know, first do no harm. Don't pick somebody who's going to fracture your base. That would be, you know, for example, if he now goes and picks a white guy, that's going to fracture his base. He's promised, promised, promised he's going to put a woman in there. He's going to, he has to do it. And he will, I'm sure he will. But, but I think beyond that, let's go to what's really right for the country. And that is, we have two men running against each other, each in their 70s. Either one of them can have severe health issues over the next year. We don't know. It's really important that each person have someone who can step in and do a credible job as president. And if, if, if something were to happen to Joe Biden, God forbid, we want somebody who can stand in there. We've been fortunate for the most part by the people who have stood in. Uh, you know, it's, it, it, is, it worked out better than we might have assumed. I mean, who would have imagined when Jack Kennedy was assassinated that Lyndon Johnson would pass two of the most important civil rights bills in the history of the country? You just, that just was not, and, or that Jerry Ford coming in behind uh, Richard Nixon, you know, pardoning Nixon, but and at the time it was seen as, you know, a, ter- a terrible decision, but it was the Kennedy Library, the John F. Kennedy Library that gave him their annual award for courage for doing that because it, it put an end to it. So I, I think it's really important to have somebody who's classic. Now, having said that, and also understands how to govern and understands power, is not afraid of power. Uh, and I must tell you, I don't, I hear some dis, uh, disquieting comments from friends in California, but from a distance, Senator Harris seems to me to have the right kind of, seems to have the best qualifications among the people whose names are appearing. I don't know about her. You know, if only people who've worked with her closely can really understand. I, I'm not an African American. I don't understand how she fits into the African American narrative. That's something that other people really have to settle. But I, 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 I think well, I think well of what I've seen. I think she carries the argument to the other side pretty darn well. She's got a sense of humor, and she comes from you know she comes from the Bay Area, and I think that's a positive thing. Uh, she understands technology, you know, coming out being a Californian. Now there are some. That's not to say there are not some other candidates. I, I think if you look at the other candidates, it's not clear. Most of them are much much less known and have had much much less experience. Uh, what about Susan Rice? Well, Susan Rice is, has never run for office. Uh, right. And you don't typically put somebody in that position. I, I, I happen to know Susan Rice. I gained a lot of respect for her during the Obama years. And uh, I think the world of her brother, John Rice, who does some wonderful things to advance uh, promising uh, African-Americans in professional positions. He's, he's been a great, great service on the East Coast. Uh, she comes from a good family, an interesting family. And I'm sure she'd be real level-headed. Uh, she's got a. There was a time I thought she was pretty had a pretty short fuse, and I haven't seen evidence of that in recent years. I'm just being straight with you about it. But I do think she's got the chops, as she knows foreign policy. It is a big leap. It's a very big leap from being a presidential advisor going into the Oval Office. It is that's a very very big leap. And not many. You, you, we were fortunate to have a Harry Truman standing by. We were fortunate to have some of these other people standing by. And we have, but again, I think the single most important thing is uh, to find somebody of real capability and can help unite the country. And by the way, I, I think that uh, I, Elizabeth Warren would be the best policy yes. person, but I worry about the, the, her fracturing 
of the base. Um, the, the, she still doesn't have the support of the, of the business community. I do think she was a very strong candidate during the, uh, and I think she grew a lot during the election. So let's talk about presidential pardons. Uh, so a, a presidential pardon is an official expression of forgiveness that removes civil penalties, restrictions on the right to vote, to hold elective office, sit on the jury, those kinds of things. The record for pardons goes to FDR, who pardoned 2,819 people. But of course, he served three FDR three terms plus one year into his fourth. So he had plenty of time to pardon that many people. But I looked at um, Nixon, Ford, Reagan, uh, Clinton. And so Ford had 382 pardons, Reagan, 393, uh, Clinton, 396. And I wasn't able to find pardons for Nixon. I don't know why that was. So as of July 1st of this year, Trump has pardoned 25 people. And I'm just going to highlight, there's just a handful uh, Joe Arapaio and the crime, contempt of court, Michael Milken, fraud, Scooter Libby, perjury, Eddie Gallagher, war crimes, Rod Blagojevich, corruption, uh, Roger Stone, lying to Congress, witness tampering, and he'll likely pardon Michael Flynn, and that was lying to the FBI. So are Trump's pardons different from all other presidential pardons? And if so, in what way? And also, should a president's pardon power be limited? I'm glad you raised this question. It's a very troublesome one. And you might have added Paul Manafort to a, to a list of potential pardons. Because it illustrates one, a lot of the pardons in the past have been based on merit and not personal politics. Uh, and this is particularly a sticky wicket because there were, when, when the investigations were underway, uh, with regard to the impeachment, the investigation, they couldn't get a lot of information. People climbed up, right? And Manafort climbed up, uh, Flynn climbed up, so did Stone. And so, so when you get pardoned, and then you pardon people after that, have you, in effect, engaged in witness tampering? I, I mean, it seems to me that's the, that's what distinguishes this from us. I must say, I thought there were some, there, were, there have been pardons in the past by other presidents. You know, Bill Clinton and, and Mark, whatever his name was, uh, um, Rich. Right. Yeah. Rich. That didn't know. And he was a fugitive, you know, living in Switzerland or something. Um, and there's been pardons by other people. But I, but I do think that, I, I think Trump has been ill-advised to pardon people while he's doing it who have connections to all these investigations. Do you think the pardon power should be limited because... You know, in my view, he has abused the power. Trump has abused it. And I, I, I like your analogy. I do think it, it really amounts in many instances, at least a couple, to, to witness tampering. That, you know, they've shut up, and so I'll, I'll give you a pass because you haven't spilled the beans on me. Do you think the pardon power should be limited? Well, I, I, would, I would prefer. I'm, I'm not sure we can write. Where does the pardon power come from? Does it come from the Constitution? So yes. you, you would have to write, a, you would have to write have legislation. To. An amendment, yeah. I don't think we ought to carry it out to the amendment process. We've got more serious issues to devise. I do think that there ought to be a standard that it is, when in doubt, commute, don't bargain. Commute, you know, that keeps you from going to, the, to jail, uh, but, but you're still indicted or you're still a, a felon. Uh, I don't think you should be just, you know, uh, released. 
from that that conclusion. It is after in a, a society that already has too much elitism. It is really really a mistake to to continue the standards that that look that look corrupt. So the Electoral College has 538 members. There's one for each U.S. Senator and Representative, and then there's three from the District of Columbia. And they indirectly elect the President of the United States. So it works this way. If the majority of the voters of a state vote for, say, the Democratic presidential nominee, then the Democratic slate of electors are the ones that get to go to the Electoral College. And then once they are there, uh, the electors then from each state vote for the presidential and vice presidential candidates at the college. Now, in July of this year, uh, the Supreme Court unanimously ruled that the states can require its electors who go to the college to vote for the candidates of the party that selected them. So that means that today there are 31 states and the District of Columbia where the electors can be fined in New Mexico, they could be charged with a felony, or they can be removed and replaced if they're not faithful to the majority of the voters from their state. Uh, so recently, calls have been renewed to abolish the Electoral College and to elect the president with direct popular votes. Now, if we had only the popular votes count, then Al Gore would have been president, and so would Hillary Clinton. Question, uh, good idea or not? to get rid of the Electoral College? It's a, it's a good idea whose time has now passed. Uh, and oh. we, uh, we ought to be uh, dismantling it. There's one other element, for example, that it really, really is troublesome going into this election. If it were to go into the Electoral College, as you know, at the vote in the Electoral College, uh, when we get through the House of Representatives from the Electoral College, they don't arrive at a, at a majority, right? It goes into the House of Representatives. At that stage, each state gets one vote. There are more red states than there are blue states. And what you're going to find is that the president could lose the election by, say, six or seven million votes and, and still prevail in, in the House of Representatives. That is a real problem. Uh, and I think the people of California have... Um, you know, frankly, you're getting screwed by it because, because they don't. If you, if you live in Montana, you've got a lot more power as a citizen than you do if you live in California. Uh, and so there's that is what is, I think, we, we need to. It is a. We, we're increasingly putting a burden on the Democratic Party. You, it's not a question just of winning a majority of votes. You've got to win by at least three or four percent. And we've had like three or four close elections in the last few years. So. There's an unfairness to that that's just blatant. So how do we get rid of the Electoral College? What is the process? I don't think we're there yet, but the day may come when there's sufficient uh, unrest in the country about the way the political system is, is broken, that we could then either see a constitutional convention. But, uh, Lenores, I don't think we're there yet. I, and I think, frankly, if... If, if we were going to the White House with a president tomorrow, or let's say in January, and he said, what, what should we be doing? I think reforming the Electoral College is probably one of the last fights you want to take on. You really want to take on the fight about jobs and, and, and justice. Right. Uh, you want to take on a job about health care in this country. You know, about the way people, real people are affected. I think that ought to be our first priority. 
So you know, what troubles me, too, about the Electoral College is I, I understand it was a compromise um, between those who wanted Congress to elect the president and those who wanted the popular vote. And then there was the issue about slave owning st- the states where the slaves and and then using uh, the compromise included counting every slave as three fifths of a person. Uh, and so the, even the whole history of it um, just doesn't make me feel good. It doesn't make me feel good. So I, I, I totally understand that. I don't, listen, as a white person, I didn't understand a lot of this growing up. We, I, I grew up in the South uh, and we just had a whole different story. And, and you know, frankly, we were lied to um, by our elders. And, and uh, I, I don't blame the founders for doing what they did. Some people now blame the founders for the way it was, the, the Constitution was drawn up. But, you know, they, they really couldn't have held the republic together had they made, not made those compromises. So, uh, you know, I, I, it was a tough call. You had, you had people who ex- ex- decided that they had to accept slavery rather than give up the republic. And they were, they were anti-slavery. Politics is never an easy game, and it's frequently a very rough game. But this was all about power. And when you're in president, you're president, you only have a limited amount of time. You have a limited amount of, of, of sort of uh, authority to spend, power to spend. And if you're facing something on the electoral college and you realize it's the red, the, the people in the red states are just no way in hell they're going to change it. They're going to vote against uh, uh, abolishing the electoral college. And they frankly will, will block it at the end of the day. And so why do you, why would you spend two years? I'd much rather have a fight over getting the ERA back into, into getting the ERA into the Constitution. We're getting that fight for the moment yeah. than, than the other. Yeah, just an aside about politics in general, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. On a very local level, I've run for office twice and I've won twice. I mean, one, I ran for a judgeship and the other, I ran for city council here in Palo Alto. And I won. And but at the same time, I, it didn't res, politics did not resonate with me. It wasn't something that I enjoyed, took pleasure in. And there are people who just love it. They 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 thrive in it and they do good work. But it, I'm not one of those persons. We should not. We should give credit to the people in the arena who do good work. I'm not so keen on the political lobbyists and the people who surround all of it. And, you know, because they're they're not in there trying to do good work. They're trying to, you know, run a fight. Um, and yeah. often, you know, often there's a lot of money involved. Yes, yeah. so there's, there's there's a distinction between the John Lewis's of the world are frankly just not enough of them. I mean, he is such a beacon of light and of hope. I agree. Um, I agree. We just need to we need to keep we focus so much on how things are terrible that we shouldn't forget the people among us who have who, have, who represent the light as he did. And, and I do look at the stamina and longevity for someone like, for example, like Nancy Pelosi. I mean, I mean, she's she's been in there, and and I see the energy level, and I'm I'm just amazed. I'm amazed because I don't get how how she does it. Ten years ago, uh, if she'd been in the same position, she would have been the nominee of the party. Ten years younger, she's she's not. Yeah, you know, this is not the right thing for her. She knows that now. But uh, and I happen to know Paul Pelosi, and I'm a big fan of his as well. Wow. So let's talk Supreme Court. All right. This year, um, the Supreme Court has issued 13 decisions, two of which were unanimous, the decision on the Electoral College, and they were unanimous in their decision to overturn the convictions of two of Chris Christie's associates in Bridgegate, the Bridgegate scandal. And so there were 11 other rulings. And I just want to just quickly kind of 
because I think a lot of people are not up to speed on those 11 and they're very significant. And then I want to ask you about what's going on at the court. And so let me just real quickly, just kind of bullet pull them out. So we have two decisions that uh, said the president is not above the law. Um, the court declared that much of Eastern Oklahoma was an Indian reservation. Uh, they allowed employers to deny contraception coverage to female workers they found that employment discrimination laws do not apply to teachers at religious schools. They ruled that the states cannot exclude religious schools from programs that provide scholarships to students in private schools. They threw out Louisiana law that required doctors to perform abortions only at hospitals that have admitting privileges. They allowed the president to fire the director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau for any reason. They stopped the president from shutting down DACA. They ruled that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 applied to gay and transgendered people. And they ruled that there must be a unanimous jury verdict to convict a defendant of a serious crime. So there was one state left, by the way, when they made that ruling that still allowed non-unanimous juries to convict someone of a felony. Okay, so that's just this term. My question is, what's going on at the court? Can you make any sense out of where the court is headed? Thank God you, the president cannot control every appointee in terms of what decisions they're going to be making for the next 20 or 30 years. That is so reassuring. You know, we've all been sort of concerned, okay, if the court turns a hard right, what's going to happen to Roe v. Wade? What's going to happen to all these other things? What All the environmental regulations that be dismantled and all the rest. And it turns out, there are some pretty sensible decisions. That's not to say that the conservatives won't be uh, not, you know, prevail. They they will prevail in, in a great number of cases. But I have my respect level for John Roberts has gone up. It does seem to me, you know, going all the way back to the Affordable Care Act decision uh, earlier, two or three years ago, uh, that he is uh, that he's very cognizant. He's his his role as Chief Justice is partly to preserve the dignity and the integrity of the court. That's very, very important. It was, it's clear. And so he's willing to break ranks with his, his conservative supporters and conservative allies sometimes. And a lot of conservatives, you know, are really angry with him. Now, that's one drama that is playing out. The other drama, uh, of course, is, is Ruth Bader Ginsburg. What's going to happen between yes. now? You know, the this Sunday, this coming Sunday, we're going to be 100 days from the election. She's that woman, unbelievable. Uh, she struggled, but then prevailed against cancer. But who knows what's going to happen in those hundred days? And then we're going to have one hell of a fight, probably because you know Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, has vowed he's not going to let the calendar stand in the way, and he would be got a nominee from the White House. He's going to shove it on through. Uh, and the Democrats, of course, will feel that scandalous given the fact that they, they feel they, he's already stolen one Supreme Court seat from them. So there is a there is a lot riding on the health of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She is a heroine. Yeah, do you, do you believe that they could actually push through and get someone in between November 3rd and January 20th? I think they physically could, but now it comes to the question that you raised earlier. Are there Republicans who are willing to break ranks on that and see as a separate. Uh, uh, and I think there are some who would, because they'll know there'd be a storm. There would be a huge storm. If, if Biden were to win the White House and they shove through a conservative, 
try to, there would be a huge storm in this country. Huge. Now, there's a secondary issue, which I think has less drama, but is also important for the future of the court. Is there, there is a lot of speculation in Washington right now that, uh, that Clarence Thomas, uh, who is now, I think, in his early 70s, uh, may step down and give the president a chance to name a new justice who is much younger and will be there for a long time. And we'll see if that materializes. But I think the, the serious drama and one that's, I can't tell you how many people are watching great, great anxiety is over Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She wins enormous amount. I've, I've been in a couple of situations where before the COVID had us all sit down out of sight. But I was at a couple of uh, events in New York where she was being honored. And she was treated like, you know, it was just, it was like stunning. Higher, how high the regard was there for her. And she was just, she's a, uh, I think she's probably one of the, she and John Lewis together constitute two of the most, the biggest heroes in the country right now. Interesting. I have to tell you, I have mixed feelings about John Roberts and my, my big problem with him was the, the Voting Rights Act because he wrote the majority opinion that basically, in my view, just gutted it. Um, and his premise for doing it was that, well, you know, we're good now. You know, we got racial equality. We have a black president. And I, I just wonder, you know, I, I quietly thought, what, what is he smoking? You know, what, where do you get that from? So let's talk about something most people don't even know about. And it's the Arctic Council. So the Arctic Council is comprised of eight countries, all right, including the U.S. So we're talking Canada, Denmark, Finland, Iceland, Norway, Russia, Sweden, and the U.S. And they basically have sovereignty over the Arctic Circle. Okay. So Secretary of State Pompeo, he's addressing the Arctic Council in 2019. He never mentioned the words climate change. And instead, and I'm going to quote from what he said, it just blew my mind. Ready? Steady reductions in sea ice are opening new naval passageways and new opportunities for trade, potentially slashing the time it takes for ships to travel between Asia and the West by 20 days. So he appears to be saying that the melting of Arctic ice is a good thing. So question for you, what do you make of this administration's utter disregard of science and, of course, of medical data when it comes to the COVID? Uh, so climate change, COVID, what do you make of their whole disregard of science and data? In the Republican Party, you know, once had a reputation for respecting science. Uh, I recall President Eisenhower, one of the first presidents, I think he had the president of MIT resign and come to the White House as the science advisor. Uh, and that, that post has usually been held in very, very high regard uh, by the White House and by the science community because that, the person in that position has an enormous amount of sway over not just policy, but how much we're going to fund the NIH, how much we're going to fund the NSF, the National Science Foundation. Those are our two main engines coming out of Washington uh, to, uh, to really prop up the amount of research. And now we're having a situation, of course, when the research money is being cut. But, but very importantly, the, the people who are doing the research have been sort of dismissed and marginalized. And, and it's, um, the Republican Party has lost its way. I think this is one of the elements. I think race is another. 
the the the, the growing gap on wealth is another things that they they are painting themselves on the wrong side of history, and it, it, it's dangerous to the party, but more importantly, it's dangerous to the country. Uh, if I'm just extend that one more minute, by by, by chance, um, I had the uh, the opportunity this past summer to go on an Arctic expedition to Greenland. Uh, never been there. Uh, it was a group, mostly a small group of Europeans, and we had, you know, scientists and guides and everything like that. And I went in feeling like we had a responsibility, or at least we, it was important that we preserve the Arctic, preserve Greenland. And I came out thinking it's a moral imperative. You cannot visit an area like that without feeling like there is something that if the great creator left us anything, one of these was one of the gifts. And we have a responsibility to preserve it. And what it's going to do to, to the, the next big, big uh, catastrophe is going to be on the climate. It's so, it's so obvious we're heading in that direction. We don't even know what's going to happen Absolutely. in California this, this the next few weeks on wildfires. And it's going to be, you know, what is going to be the weather changes in, in addition to the pandemic. It's not a healthy situation, and we ought to have – science advisor the president, Bush, senior, told me once that 50% of the major bills that go through Congress have a serious scientific question embedded in them. And I, so I just think it's incomparable we have people. But there is no issue to me. The big existential issue of our time is climate. Yeah. I have five grandchildren, and I'm so – you know, just concerned about what this world is going to be like for them. Um, and it's very sad. Very, very sad. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in your book um, that you published in 2000, it's a bestseller called Eyewitness to Power, uh, you offered seven vital elements that future leaders must possess. And I'm, I'm going to just rattle them off now. Um, I think they're, they're amazing. And I have a question to follow. So the seven vital elements that future leaders must possess, inner mastery, a central compelling purpose rooted in moral values, a capacity to persuade, an ability to work within the system, all right, a sure quick start, strong prudent advisors, and a passion that inspires others to carry on the mission. Those were your seven elements in the book you wrote, Eyewitness to Power, that future leaders should possess. So how do you rate Presidents Clinton, George W. Bush, Obama, Trump, and let's add Biden in on those seven qualities of leadership? Uh, well, I, it's a mixed bag. And, um, uh, you know, I, you didn't have Nixon in there, and he's obviously the one that is the most destructive until now. Uh, and, I just, <laughs> I, I, and I do worry about what the Trump legacy is going to be. I had, uh, Look, having had the privilege of working for four presidents, you become, if you go work in there, you really do then care about the future of other presidents. You want our presidents to succeed in, in doing good things. And so at first I started, I had a sense of real disappointment with Trump, but that disappointment has turned into frustration and it's turned into anger because I do think so many, there's been so much destruction and it's going to take a long time for Biden or anybody else to dig out of it. And if there's a second Trump term, well, we, well, we can, you can speculate on that if you wish, but nonetheless, um, among the rest, I thought that actually Reagan came the closest to being a, an effective leader. You don't have to agree with him on policy, 
My wife thought he was you know, absolutely objective on most of the things he did. But if you bring him in terms of his character, the hitting the ground running, you know, having his team, you know, there were a lot of things about him that I think stand out fairly well or stand up against history. Ford had such a short time, but if you go, okay, let's go through. So, so Nixon was a real loss. Um, you know, Jerry Ford, I thought was very good for his time, but he had the shortest administration in history. Carter was a saint. We all thought we needed a personal character. We got a personal character, but it turns out that's not enough. You still need to be able to play the game. And Carter was, you know, I think he was well suited to be a saint, not well suited to be president, tough president. But I'll leave out George W. Bush. I thought George W. Bush, he's one of the nicest men I've ever met in politics. His, his wife bore some grudges. When I went to work for Bill Clinton, she was really tipped off. Because <laughs> she thought I should have been more supportive of him and them. Um, but we, he got over it. I don't think she ever forgave me for that. But I, I thought that he was measured, restrained, especially in the use of force. I thought he was a very, very good foreign policy president. Uh, he could have danced on the, on the grave of the Soviets. He chose not to do that. He, people don't understand how important it was to unify Germany, which he did. It was a huge step forward. And he never really tried to claim too much credit for it, but he, it, it, it was instructive that later on when Obama came into office, he looked at George H.W. as the way to conduct policy. Not that he was always right, but that was the way to construct it. And there are a lot of similarities between the two. I thought, I thought Bill Clinton was a better president than he's now remembered to be. I thought he could achieve more. We actually saw during his second term, uh, the, the income from in the bottom quintile actually went up faster as a percentage than the income at the top quintile. You know, they created an African-American museum in Arkansas. He was inducted in the first class uh, by the by the African-American community. I thought he was good on race. He really did care. I thought he was not, I thought he was slow the second time on other issues, but on race he cared. It mattered to him. Coming from the South, you can understand that. What you learn in politics, when I tried to write about and teach students since, is it's really important to be competent, but it's far more important to have character. That job requires a person of real character. And I grew up in an academic family, and I always thought the smartest person would make the best leader. It's just not true. It, what is true, you need somebody who is, is competent, but the character question matters more. And ultimately, whether they do the right, try to do the right thing, they have the courage to do it. Uh, matters a lot more, and I uh, clearly Richard Nixon had a real problem in character, right? I mean, he had demons inside him; yeah. he never learned to control them. Um, and Bill Clinton had cracks in his character when he got there. Now, I felt that he got elected a little early. I think he would have settled down. I think his marriage would have been more settled had he had he come out a, a term or two later. It all came as a great surprise to him when he ran. When Bill ran, he called me the night he declared, and. and he didn't think he was going to get the nomination. He was running to get preparation for running later. But he thought Mary Cuomo was going to jump in, win the nomination, lose the election to George H.W., and then he built Clinton to run the following term, after the following term. And, and then, of course, he got the nomination and lost. Uh, he won, but he, he got it so early in his life, and his marriage was not settled at that point, that it was tough for him. So, uh, I, I, I look back now at Barack Obama with more nostalgia than I thought I would. There were times with his administration I was not happy with some of the things he did, especially on foreign policy. In retrospect, he, in the rearview mirror of history, 
uh, Barack Obama looks better. But ideologically, Joe Biden is to the left of center, but he is not way over to the left. He is not a creature of the socialist. He's not a creature of AOC, as Trump is accusing him of. But he, uh, uh, he's not. He's not Bernie, and he's not. I don't think he's all the way over to Elizabeth. It's how Warren. But I think, but I, I do think a couple of things. One is I think he will, he has the choice of the finest talent in the country right now. A lot of people who are sort of frustrated and angry about the last two or three, uh, would like to go in and correct me. So I think he, I think he can put together a really terrific cabinet. My hope would be that, that he would try to govern in a bipartisan way, that he would be a healing president. That's what Jerry Ford was. He got us back on track. And my real hope is that Biden would first and foremost Start the healing process and change our politics so we unleash the power and the imagination of the people. Um, but I want to say one other thing about Biden. The more I see of him, the more I think that he's a pretty sweet guy. Uh, he's got a lot of empathy. I don't, you know, he's not, he's not, you know, he can stumble around with his words and things, but underneath his words, there's real feeling, there's emotional structure to him. He suffered so much in life. That I think it's made him wiser. I, I, I wrote a piece of him the other day. I said, he's the first real mensch for president. I, I, I think he has that quality about him. And I, and I think people will like that. I think a lot of people would say to their kids, you know, this is a guy you, you pay attention here. He's, he's trying to help us get out of the mess. So we're, we're getting close to the end, but we have a few more questions. I've been pulling some in from those who've been listening in and watching. What's your opinion of William Barr? and how he's been using the Justice Department. Uh, we just have very strong differences of opinion about the authority that's granted to the Constitution. He's got sort of this unitary view of the, the Constitution, as you know, that says basically whatever this president does or says, he's right, he's, he, is, he, he makes the laws. And he, you know, and it's true in some areas, the president can unilaterally declassify information. He does have that power, but he does not have the power to, and I, Put troops on the streets of Park Portland, as far as I can tell. He, he does not have a lot of the powers he's trying to exercise right now. And I think that, that Bill Barr came in as a, uh, as a, an enabler. Uh, I was surprised because Bill Barr had a, uh, a, a very fine reputation back in the George H.W. Bush period. He was seen as a constructive, yes, a conservative, but not a hard, hard conservative. And the, the person who's emerged you know, right from the time he started fooling around and get, jumping out in front of the cameras about what, the, what you know, what had been resolved up on Capitol Hill, it, it looked like he was covering for the president. And, and only on one or two occasions since then has he looked like he was actually being what he's supposed to be, and that is in, he's supposed to be independent of the president's political games. He's not supposed to be. There's a reason the attorney general does not go to political conventions, because he's not a politician. Supposed to be the nation's chief lawmaker. Right. Yeah, the justices don't go to conventions. So I think he's crossed the line. I think it's unfortunate. Do you think that if Joe Biden is elected, that he, in the four years, first four years, he would be able to salvage our foreign policy, given our standing now in the world, which I don't see us in a good place at all? Uh, this, I know he's got his work cut out from him. Do you think it can be done? He's going to have to get a lot done the first two years. Generally speaking, because after that there's going to be a real fight. He's, he's, you know, very likely if he were to be a one-time president, I think he can turn that into a plus, not a minus, by being, you know, more bipartisan, bringing people together, doing things that nobody else would do, and then saying, 
you guys can play in the sandbox again. But in the meantime, let's clean things up. And I think he can do some of that. Now, it's really, really, really important to the foreign policy and America's standing in the world. What conclusions people in Europe and some of our other friendly nations take after, after the election? At the moment, our diplomats can go tell people in Germany the, the Trump was an aberration. And we're not just in a personal way, but in the way we choose the Paris Accords, the way these various other treaties, the, the, the disparagement of NATO, uh, his support for Brexit, there are all sorts of things that I think put him in a, in a really awkward situation. So, the, you know, the Germans really, Merkel just hates him. And yeah. some of the other leaders are, are they're not respectful. I think if, if, he, if he served out one term and people can say it was aberrational, then we like to buy them. I think things get better pretty fast. If he gets elected a second time, I think Europe will draw the conclusion the first time may have been an operation, the second is an acceleration. And if that's who America has become, so be it. Uh, that's the world we have to live in, but it's not the America of the past. You know, and, and I think I think the Trump people are very serious about separating out. They think it's in our country's interest. I don't. I just happen to disagree with that. I mean, I think the disagreements on foreign policy are pretty, on each side are, are rooted in some pretty important truths, uh, and pretty important views. A lot of the politics we play at home you know, are different. With regard to, America is no longer the world leader. We have a chance to be a world leader. We still have a chance to do that. I think if we pull ourselves back together, uh, we've got an even better chance of reasserting our leadership. And I think it's really important. I just don't see, I don't see the climate change being brought under control absent American leadership. The rest of the world is simply not going to do this. We, we've now reached the point in our program where there's just time for one last question. And it's, this, is, this is a big favor I ask of you uh, because it may be the toughest question of all. Um, can you please leave all of us with some words of hope about the future of this country and its standing in the world? Uh, one of the privileges in my life was after leaving Washington to become a teacher. Uh, and I've been I've been in the classrooms now for about 20 years, um, and mostly through the Kennedy School at Harvard. Uh, but I spent some time to and I've been out to Stanford and doing guesting here and there. And I am increasingly encouraged by the quality of the people I see in the millennial generation and Generation Z, as they're called. Um, I they they remind me more and more of the World War II generation, which was not one generation that I looked up to for some years and served the country so well. I'm seeing a lot of people come home from Afghanistan and Iraq and take their uniforms off and then run for public office. So I've been involved in trying to help getting veterans elected to Congress. We had 19 veterans in this last go-round in 2018 who got elected first year, and, and they're working together as a, as a, a caucus in the House of Representatives. It's called Fourth Country. Or country, and they're trying to, to get things done in national service. For example, they're backing a, a bill that would create, it would take AmeriCorps from 75,000 people a year to 150,000 and 250,000. I'm a big believer in national service. I think we ask every kid in the country, give a year back to your country, you know, work in a hospital, you know, work in a school. There's so many things we need help on to pay a modest amount of money to get past this pandemic. I think if they serve early, they'll come back and serve later. So, I see that happening among the veterans, but I also see, you know, just before you and I got together, I was on a two-hour conversation, a conference call uh, with social entrepreneurs, as they're now called, 
people to go off and start nonprofits uh, and, and begin to make a serious difference. And there are a lot of those around right now. Uh, I'm on the, I've been on the board for a number of them. And I think they can do tremendous things with helping. Let's just take a group like City of uh, uh, um, Girl Trek. I, I didn't know much about Girl Trek, but it is an organization of, of women. They got 800,000 women who, who, who uh, march under their umbrella. It's a, a most of them are walkers. They spend time keeping them out. This place called Trek, but they then they they bond with each other. They support each other. They're mostly women of color. Uh, and I see that time and again. Um, students coming out want to make a difference. They're, they're not everybody. There are some real cash potatoes. There are some people who have a, a state of, uh, you know, they're arrogant as all hell. Uh, they have their, 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 there's an entitlement problem uh, among the younger generation. But at base, they remind me a lot of the World War II generation. They went out and gave for their country. They came home and then, and they really went to work as, Tom Brokaw called the World War II generation as you know, the greatest generation because they did so much to lift the middle class in this country. What we still haven't dealt with as we do go through this is the racial issue. I didn't know until recently that when it came to the GI Bill, it was basically a whites only program. I did not know that. That's stunning. It was one of the most successful initiatives uh, we've had in America. So when we're doing this, this time around, the changes, the changes have to be for everybody. That's the only way we're going to make this work. I do think if we don't come to grips uh, with the demographic changes that are taking place in the country soon, democracy is in serious trouble. You know, uh, the, 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 look around the world. There, there are a lot of countries, more countries than anybody can imagine, are losing their democracy. Uh, they're turning hard right. And there is no country, I'm told this by a couple of professors in Harvard, got a book about why, how, how democracies die. They point out at the end of the book that no multi-ethnic, no multi-ethnic democracy has survived. No multi-ethnic. The people who are in power don't like to give it up. They're very reluctant to give it up. We have to make sure this is a multi-ethnic democracy. And it still can go either way. Well, we, we shall. I'm going to take the, see the glass is half full, and we shall. We will make this democracy, keep it, and make it work. So our thanks to CNN senior political analyst and Harvard Kennedy School professor David Gergen. We also thank our audience for watching and participating live. If you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual programming, who wouldn't, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash online. David Gergen, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you. I'm Judge Cordell, and now this program of the Commonwealth Club is adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.